you are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat and uh, go and open your Bibles then to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I, uh, I, I work in the community groups ministry, love our community groups ministry, and would love to meet you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to connect with you sometime uh, soon. So maybe grab me after the service or, or say hi. But um, all throughout the summer now, we're going through various psalms, right? And, uh, and, and the wonderful thing about the psalms is that the psalms give us language that, that we can use to relate to God. The Psalms hit on every end, every bit of the spectrum of the human experience. Every emotion, every, every uh, moment that we could find ourselves in, the Psalms have the language for that. And, it's, and there's this wonderful gift to us that they give us the language to relate to God in a way. Because, you know, relating to God, honestly, it's, it can be hard sometimes. You know, we don't, our, our hearts don't naturally just easily connect with God. It, it takes some effort. It takes some intentionality. And the Psalms give us that kind of language, which is a beautiful thing. So today we're talking about something that's pretty tough. We're talking about confession. We're talking about repentance. We're, on, we're in Psalm 51, and the Psalm that we're studying today is a really, it's a poignant Psalm. It's thick. It's personal. It's gritty. In fact, if you just look at the heading of Psalm 51 in your Bible, or a lot of us, even on our apps, a lot of our apps will include the heading that David wrote when he was passing the manuscript on this song. He was passing the lyrics to the choir master. He says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So, so I mean, you know, we haven't even gotten into the psalm yet, right? And you're like, oh, oh, okay. Like, this is what we're, this is what we're talking about. Right? And, and, and many of you already know the context, but David, he seduced and had an affair with Bathsheba while her husband, Uriah, who was, I mean, it's, it's worth noting, Uriah was one of David's good buddies, like one of David's mighty men. There were 37 men that were like army rangers of his day that they fought, they shed blood together. They fought hard together. They defended David. They helped him get to the point, they helped protect him and get him to the point where he could claim his throne. Uriah was one of those dudes. And while Uriah was out fighting for Israel, fighting for the king, fighting for his, his kingdom, David, who's a married man, commits adultery with Uriah's wife and, and, and like seduces her, woos her, convinces her to commit adultery against his buddy, Uriah. And if that's not bad enough, she writes him a note and says, I'm pregnant. And so he starts scheming. He sends for Uriah, gets him back from the battlefront, gets him drunk, gives him this big royal gift basket, sends him home and says, here, go enjoy a nice date night with your wife. Like in, in his mind, he's scheming, he's gonna cover this thing up, right? And it, it doesn't work. Uriah above reproach, says, no way. Like, my dudes are on the battlefield. I'm in battle mode. I, we're in war mode. I'm not in vacation mode. I'm in war mode. So he sleeps outside the gate 
of David's uh, palace. Basically, like as the symbol of like, no, I'm here to protect you. I'm going to lay my life down even to protect you in, even in this moment. So David, continuing the scheme, afraid of getting caught, sends a note with Uriah in his own hand, seals it with the king's seal, sends it to the general and says, make it happen that this guy dies. One of, one of, his, one of his buddies. And that's exactly what happens. David arranged the matter so that Uriah would be killed. And then when the general writes back and says, it's done, he's dead, David responds and says, hey, don't think anything of it. The sword devours whom it will. Like, so, so cold, right? Like, just steely, like, awful, awful. And that's, like, that's how dark and how twisted David's heart got in this season. How blind David was to his own sin. Because sin, sin blinds us this badly. But, but God, right? So God sends Nathan, the prophet, his prophet, to go and stick his finger in David's chest and say, you did this. And he did it because he loves David. And, he's, and he, he, he knew what was going on. He saw David and he said, I'm not gonna let you just wallow in this. I'm not gonna let you implode here. I love you. I'm coming after you. And so he sends Nathan. Nathan confronts him. And instead of getting angry and defensive, instead of continuing to lie and to hide and to cover and to dodge, David, in that moment of confrontation, when Nathan sticks his finger in his chest and says, you're that man, like you're the one, you're the guilty man, David melts. And what does God do? How does God respond? God, after all that David did, God forgives him and God restores him and he establishes him as the quintessential king of his people. Now, this psalm is so good for, for our hearts, for my heart, because it lays out the path to that restoration. Because if, like if David could be rescued from his guilt, you can be rescued from yours. Right? If a man if, like of this like that got this low, this fast, this, this mired, this deep, if he could be rescued from his guilt, then you can too, right? And there's, so there's, like, there's some wonderful hope, as hard as this is when we get into it, there's some wonderful hope here. And the question that, like, the question that we ask or should be asking like, as we approach this is like, okay, well, how, how do you, when you fail, because if you're, if you're trying to follow Christ, you're going, like, you're going to trip, you're going to mess up, you're going to sin, you're going to fail, you're going to fall short. So when you do, when you fail, how do you process through that? How do you pray through that, like real failure, when you fail God and fail others and even fail yourself? How do you work through that in a way that doesn't leave you like constantly discouraged and deflated and feeling like, man, I'm just such a loser that I'm here again. Like what, I'll never get... I'll never grow, I'll never, like, how do, you, how do you process confession in a way that actually propels you closer 
to the Lord and helps you grow more intimate with him, more dependent upon him, more victorious in him, more mature spiritually, how do you process those failures in such a way that ends you in that kind of place or ends you in a place like David at the end of this psalm where, where other people are singing God's praise because of, da- because of David's failure and because of God's glory and his mercy. Because of the situation, hearts are turned to God. Like how do, you, how do you get to that place in your own life where you can say, like, look, this is, this is who I am. This is me. Let me just be as honest as possible. I don't, like, and, I, and it's not going to affect me uh, that's because it's not me anymore. Like, I've been saved from that. It's not, it's like I'm, and that's, that was me. That's my old self. That's not me anymore. How can, and how can you do that in a way that, that, that makes God, shows how God is the hero? How do you do that? Well, there's this path. It's a well-worn path. And it's all throughout scripture, but it's captured here in this psalm. If you want to experience something of the power of the Christian life, the power of life transformation, the hope for change, you need to walk this path. You need to learn to walk this path all the time. And so Psalm Psalm 51 is a prayer, all the Psalms are. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this chapter, we're going to look primarily at the first half of the chapter, and we're going to pull out, there are three main heart cries of David in this Psalm, in Psalm 51. There are three prayers within this prayer. And these are the cries of a heart that has been riddled with guilt, a heart that wants to be free from that guilt, and a heart that finds that freedom. These are the cries, these are the prayers of of this heart. Uh, so, let me, so let's read. We're going to uh, just break this down into a few verses at a time. Read with me verses 1 and 2, just for starts here. Verse 1 and 2. David says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." Let's stop there for now. So the first cry, the first prayer is simply, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. And before you say like, okay, well, isn't that, isn't that a little obvious? Like this is a prayer of confession. The whole, it's a psalm of confession. What you need to catch, what you need to catch here is, is, is where he starts and why he starts there. And, and this is the thing to note. Like he starts with God. Many of us, when we come to God in confession, like when we, can, when we finally like bottom out and get to that point where we know we need help, we know we need to come to the Lord, a lot of us start, when we're guilty, we start with us, right? Like, God, I'm so sorry. Lord, I did it. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I failed again. I feel so awful. I'm such a loser. I'm here again. Like, I, 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 right? Like, I can't believe I'm that, I'm that bad. We, we, like that's where most of us tend to start. David doesn't start there, right? If you notice this, David, David starts with God. And these, these two traits that he names in verse one are very intentional. Because if you're reading through the Old Testament, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you hear these two words and it sparks something and your mind goes someplace automatically. These are hyperlinks that get your, get your mind to think back to a very particular moment in Israel's history, when he says, when you read about your, your steadfast love and mercy, your mind is meant 
to go back to that very moment when Moses was on the mountain with God and he says, God, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to know you. Show me yourself, right? He's just getting to know, he's just getting to know God. And God says, all right, you want, to, you want to know me? You want to see me? Here's what I'll do. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to come down. I'm going to pass by. And I'm going to let you catch just the tail end of the back of my glory after I leave. You'll get kind of like the, the effervescence of my glory so you don't fry. And I'll show you who I am. And as, you're, and as you're reading through the book of Exodus in this moment, I mean, you're reading, the mountain is shaking. There's this huge storm and wind swirling about and you're expecting something like, I am the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, right? You're expecting something grand and magnificent. Now, what does he say? He says, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding, sorry, I can't, I can't not get emotional, abounding in steadfast love. You want to know who I am? This is who I am. Abounding in steadfast love. These are our words, right? Merciful and gracious. David, and here's what you got to catch, right? When you're reading through this psalm, David understands something that many of us don't yet get, many of us struggle with. He understands that God is, first and foremost, a God of mercy. This is God's heart. Like, this is who God is. He doesn't just say, have mercy. He says, he says I, know, I know this to be you. You are mercy. You are merciful. God, God, be who you are right now for me. Be you, please, and have mercy, right? Like this is, so do you, I mean, do you realize when, when you, <clears throat> friends, when you are caught in that season of your life, when you're, when you're confronted with yourself, when you see yourself and you see how ugly you are, caught in your sin or you finally like realize you wake up to your sin, Do you realize that God loves to forgive you? Like he loves to forgive you. He loves to exercise mercy. I think some of us, we, we struggle with this. Like he delights to show you. This is not a chore for him. He doesn't roll his eyes whenever you come back to him asking for forgiveness. It's already overflowing out of him. You just, like, he just is waiting for you to come and, and sit under that fountain. That's just, he can't keep, he can't help but forget, he can't help but show mercy. Abounding in steadfast love. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland, the author, shares this illustration. He says, it's, he says it's something like this. Think of God something like this. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. And he has, he has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem. The antibiotics are prepared and available. 
And he's independently wealthy. He has no need for any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, those afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms, in their own time. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care that is being freely provided. The author asks, what do you think the doctor feels at that point? Right? He feels joy. Right? This is why he came. He came to save. He came to heal. This is, what, this is what's motivating him when he looks at these people. So how do, you, how, do you feel, how do you think God feels when you come to him asking for forgiveness that he knows you need? How do you think he feels? He feels joy. He is ready for that. He is here and motivated and moved to show that kind of compassion and that mercy. When you come to the Lord for mercy and love in your anguish and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of who God is and what moves him. So friends, when you, when you realize this, like how does, that, how does that contribute to changing us? It's huge, right? Because when you realize this, it, it doesn't, like when that, that God doesn't recoil from you when you sin. He's there for you when you sin. He wants to forgive the humble heart. That, that changes something in your heart that makes you feel safe to come to him. It made David feel safe to run to his father, his creator, right? The scripture says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Knowing that, knowing that, that forgiveness is is right there for you. If you would just humble yourself and turn to him, that should motivate us to feel safe and to run, right? It makes you want to not keep running away. It makes you want to turn back to him. As long as you, I mean, I'm just like speaking from my own experience. As long as I, like as long as you keep focusing on your sin and your sinfulness, you will, you will never feel safe in the presence of a holy God. But if you get your eyes off of yourself and you start with God and focusing on him and his character, then you could never feel in danger because he's merciful and abounding in steadfast love. So, so David prays, Lord, forgive me. Be you. He starts with God. Friends, go to God with your guilt. Some of, I mean, some of us, we feel like we have to pay off our own sin, right? A lot of, you know, we struggle with this. We pay it off by, by feeling bad for an hour or a year. We pay it off by, by serving and by doing and doing and being good. We pay it off by uh, behaving in certain ways or like refraining from stuff that we enjoy. Like we like punish ourselves and, and kind of, we, like, we try to pay it off in various ways. We pay it off by, by praying and praying and like getting in God time. Like we're like counting our steps like spiritually, trying to like get right with God and get spiritually healthy again. Like, we pay it off. We, we try to pay it off in all kinds of ways. We try to pay off our guilt, pay off our shame, pay off that, that gap, that distance that we feel. And we try to get, get ourselves closer to God. Like, what's, 
Why? Why do we do Like, what's behind that? Why do we do that? We do that because there's some way in which we believe that we can actually pay for our sin. Like, we, like we, we, we feel like we owe God, which is true, we do, but we feel like we're capable of paying it off, which is preposterous. And it shows just how, how little we think of our sin, that we think that we can earn it back. And we forget that sin, any sin, all sin, even just one sin demands life. but we think we can pay it off. And so we get stuck. We get stuck in this place. We get stuck in a rut because, because we can't pay it off. We'll never pay it off. So we're stuck there feeling guilt, feeling that guilt and not actually, not actually going and just running to the God who is quick and loves to forgive. We get stuck there and Satan knows that if he can get you to that place where you're trapped in your guilt and you feel your shame, if he can get you to focus on that and stay, you, just, you, will, not, you will not grow Beyond that, you're stuck. And the result will be that you'll just spiritually, you'll stagnate and you'll be frustrated. You'll be deflated. And David, David says, this is the path, right? Lord, forgive me. Prayer number two. Lord, so Lord, forgive me. Prayer number two is, Lord, I see me. Lord, I see me. And we're, we're gonna slow down here a little bit, but look at verses three to six. Lord, I see me. He says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Right? Like, so you hear this language of self-awareness already. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So in other words, Lord, I see me. And you know this is serious confession because there's some, there's like, there is complete ownership going on here, right, with David. He's done trying to hide. He's, he's done trying to cover. He's not pointing to other people. He's not, like, he's not comparing himself to other people. He's not shifting blame, right? He's, he's, he's done with all of that. The key is complete ownership. Lord, I see me. This is me. I get it. I know it, right? Like, I, I've... I've been, so, little, little background. I've been a pastor for 19 years. And I, I feel like I've seen some stuff. And the turning point in some of the thickest, most difficult stuff of life, when I'm watching, like, a husband and wife go through something, or when I'm watching somebody really struggle to overcome this besetting sin... And to find, find freedom from that, the, the key, the turning point is coming to the end of all your excuses, not blaming anybody else, but completely owning it. You owning your stuff. Not pointing to your spouse or a friend or some external heat or circumstance, not blaming anything else, but you saying, I know that this is my fault and nobody else's. And it's not my external, it's not the circumstance. It's not because my, my body's broken. It's not because of this or that. It's, no, this was my, like, I am guilty. Right, it's not one, this is not, and this is not like one part of spiritual growth. This is the beginning every 
time. This is where spiritual growth and change starts. That's why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? In other words, like, blessed are those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty. Like, like I've, got, I've got nothing. I'm at the bottom, right? You're like, you need to own your part. David is finally stopping and recognizing himself and his role for all he's done. A couple of years ago, I, I took a class on counseling abusive marriages. It was a, it was a tough class. But one of the texts that we read uh, had this chapter which asks the question, how can I tell if my abusive husband has really changed? How, how, do, how do I know? What do I see? What are the evidences that I would see in him? And, and the author says, it's kind of like this. He says, imagine a man who lived in a neighborhood with, a really, with really kind neighbors who happened to have this huge oak tree planted in their yard, but it was like right on the border of, the, of their two properties. And this, this massive, beautiful oak tree was the pride of the neighborhood. Everybody loved it. It's this gorgeous oak tree. In fact, I've got one not where, where Kelly and I now live in Kensington Park. There's this oak tree that my kids and I walk past and we stop every time. It's even got a little, the owners put a face on it. Just this beautiful, gnarly, huge oak tree. J.R.R. Tolkien would have loved it. And, I, and so, so he said, imagine this guy, he's got these neighbors, he's got this tree, and over the years, he becomes so frustrated with this tree because it's, it's so big, it's like blocking the sunlight and killing his grass. And every fall, it dumps its leaves. And so he's out there raking up and raking up and raking up, and he's like, I got rid of all my trees so I don't have to do all this maintenance, and here's this tree, give me all this work, I don't like this thing. So he would go to his neighbors and say, hey, can you cut down your tree? And they would say, no, it's beautiful, like we love it, it's gorgeous. No, we're not gonna cut it down. He said, well, can you prune it back? No, we're not gonna change it, we're leaving it be. And he just, he just grew in his, like, he just became this curmudgeon guy, that, and everybody knew, like the neighborhood knew, this dude's got, he's got it out for that tree and his neighbors. And so one day, his neighbors go away on vacation, they're gone for a week, and he starts scheming. And what does he do? He goes out, he takes an ax, and he goes and he hacks the thing, hacks at it, hacks at it, and he gets a rope and he pulls it and, and, and has it fall onto their property. And he's, and he's like, finally, it's done, I feel good. Nobody saw me, so he heads back in, puts his ax away, Nobody, nobody saw what happened. So he's like, okay, it's, it's, this is great. It's over. Finally, it's over. They come back. They see what happened. They're aghast, right? Like they're, they're blown away. And they know, and they know. Like they see it. They can see the condition it's been hacked at. They know it was him. There's no way it was not him. And so he goes on. He, he's like pretending like everything's fine. He's going about his business. He's walking out in the neighborhood and and, and he, he feels like the scowls from the neighbors because every, and and, everybody knows. Everybody knows what happened. Their beloved tree is gone and the, the grump, the Grinch, mixed it, right? And, and so and he's, he's feeling this distance. He's feeling like he's not invited to the parties anymore. He's not, nobody talks to him anymore. Everybody avoids him. And he's, he's, just, he's feeling the distance. And so he's like, okay, I gotta, I've got to do something. Finally, he gets to the bottom of himself. He, he says, I gotta do something. And, and he decides 
to address it. Now, how, so the author asks, how? How do you know that the man has changed? And he lays out these, these kind of like, these steps, if you will. He says, he's going to admit that he cut down the tree. He's going to verbally admit to the neighbor and to the neighborhood. He's going to admit that he cut down the tree. Second, he's going to stop blaming the neighbors or anybody else. He's, gonna, he's not going to come up with excuses and say, well, if only they had, like, if, if you just done what, some of what I said and, like, trimmed some of it or maybe helped me out with raking the stupid leaves or, no, he's not, he's not going to do any of that. He's just going gonna to stop blaming. Second, stop blaming. Third, he's going to accept the consequences, the just consequences. Like, if there's financial reparation involved or, or, or there's, there's legal fees or whatever and there's going to be no, like, poor me attitude about it, He's going to say, yeah, this is what I deserve. This is just, I will take it. Fourth, he's going to devote long-term, serious effort towards restoration. Like he's he's going to go with the neighbors to find a new tree. And he's going to plant that tree. And he's going to water that thing. He's going to baby it. He's going to go out and buy fertilizer. And he's going to feed it. And he's going to protect it from the deer and from the, from the bugs. And he's going to see this thing for years and years. He's going to make sure that this new tree flourishes and takes root and, and is off and running. Long term. And then fifth, he's going to treat his neighbors well, kindly. Right? And so, so, so step into our psalm here, into Psalm 51 again, and think about David and listen to his language here, right? So go, go to verse three. How can, you, how can we tell, is David serious? Like, does he actually get it? Does he own his part? Like, like can he actually say, Lord, I see me? Look at, look at what happens. He says, verse three, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In other words, he can't escape his sin, right? He, he's, he's shifted from just the subjective feeling of guilt to this objective knowledge of, I know it. I know now what I've done. I, I, like, I see the bar. I see the line. I know that I crossed it. Before I was avoiding, I was denying. I was skirting around it. No, I know it. It's, it's right in front of me. Why? Because verse four, go on to verse four. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Right? So, so he sees what makes it really wrong. He knows he did it, and he sees why it's actually wrong. This doesn't mean, by the way, he's, it doesn't say, when he says, against you and you only have I sinned, it doesn't mean that Uriah and Bathsheba and even their, the, the, the child, the baby, weren't hurt or affected by his sin. Of course they were. He knows that. He's not minimizing his sin. He's, he's not minimizing the pain of all he did and all whom he affected. It means that what makes sin so dark, so insidious. What makes sin, sin, is that it is violence against the holiness of God. It is treason against his perfect reign and will. And David's saying, I, get, I, I see it, I get it. I know now why this is such a big deal. And and. and when you consider that, I know like, I've talked to people who are like, well, this is my, you know, this is kind of like my private struggle, my private sin. Like it's not really affecting anybody. It's just, it's just me. That, this, 
blows that out of the water. There is no such thing as an unaffecting, private, little, like, innocent sin. It is treason. It is an affront to our creator. And, and David, he gets to that bottom point, right? And then, and, then, and then it goes on. It says he vindicates God and not himself, right? He's done vindicating himself. He's done trying to protect. He vindicates God instead. He says, verse four, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, right? So this is radical God-centered repentance. This is not remorse, right? This is repentance. Remorse, you know the difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is about me. Repentance is about, is about God. Remorse says, like, oh, woe is me. I got caught. Like, shame on me. I feel terrible. That's remorse. I'm an idiot. Repentance says, Lord, I have, I have hurt you. I have affronted you. I've rebelled against you. And, and if, you, if you, again, if you focus on yourself, you're going to get trapped. If you focus on God, you, can't, you couldn't stay there if you tried, if you focus properly on God. And, and, and lastly, he, David admits that he has no excuse. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's talking about his sin nature. He's talking about our sin nature as human beings. And he's not saying that that's an excuse, right? He's not, he's not admitting that, he's not saying that he has no excuse. He's saying it's even worse than that. Like, think about everything that I did. Adultery, murder, lies upon lies. It was was horrible. And I have in me the capacity to just keep on going unless the Lord intervenes. Because of my nature, because of my sinful nature. That's, That's what he's saying. I have no excuse. And then verse six, he says, behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In other words, I, I know better. You've, you've taken time to actually instruct me and show me, like, don't, don't do this, do this. Like, I, this is my character. This is what I want. I know that. And I still cross the line. I have no excuse. I'm out of excuses. All right, so do, you, so do you see it? This is where David goes. Lord, I see me. Like, like right, right? He's just ripping himself up. This is me. I see me. I finally get it. I see me. And this is complete ownership. Do, do you want to grow? Like, do you want, do you want to experience the, the beauty of life change and transformation and, and, and going on in your walk with the Lord to great things? Do you want that? If you want that, you need to walk through, you need to go through this process of completely owning your stuff. A lot of us don't, it's not comfortable, right? It's not easy. So, so a lot of us, we avoid that, like that, the, that plunge, that downward slope that this is, that this requires to really get to the bottom of our hearts. That downward slope that, that results in the ski jump that leaves us free and flying and experiencing God's goodness and his grace and that growth. It requires the plunge. Don't avoid it. Right? David, David learned not to avoid it. So Lord, forgive me. Lord, I see me. And lastly, I'll be brief here. Lord, renew me. Lord, renew me. He says, verse seven, purge me with hyssop 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, God renew me. David didn't ask, note, note this. David David did not ask for a second chance. He asks for a new heart, a new engine, right? Like my boy, uh, Owen, a couple years ago, he got a remote control car, which he loved more than anything to drive around the kitchen while we were preparing dinner. Like, I guess it's just be like, he just thought like, oh, this is fun. There's moving objects, all the energy is right here in the house right now. So he would, like, anyway, so we would tell him, we would ask him to stop. We would ask him to go to the other room. And then you could, like, you could, if he was zipping along, you could put your foot in front of it and it would stop, right? But as soon as you remove your foot, it's just going to keep right on going. Unless or until you, you pick the thing up, you change directions, and you send it in a different, or put it in a different room, right? And David's saying, don't just give me a second. Don't just dust off the old, don't give me a new chance. Don't stop me. Give me a new heart. I need a new, like I need transformation. Lord, renew me, right? And so, and, and how does that happen? Verse seven, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Well, that sounds, that sounds delightful, but, but how does that actually like produce change? Here's how. And I, and I hope you hear the gospel in this. When he says, purge me with his, he's, he's tapping into something really profound here. The word purge me literally means like desin me. And hyssop, how do you desin somebody with hyssop? Hyssop was used by the priests in ceremonial practices when somebody was exposed to leprosy or to a corpse. The two things that were consistently used as symbols for sin in the Bible. And they would take, you would, you would take a sacrifice, a living a little animal, an innocent animal, squirming in your arms. This little animal that you've come to know and care for, you raised, you take this, this little animal of yours, you take it to the temple. And the priest would kill it and sacrifice it for you and then dip the hyssop in the blood of that animal and mark you with it. Does that... Does that sound familiar to you? Being marked by the blood of a substitute sacrifice? This is, like David is, he's proclaiming the gospel, right? And, and, and how does that change you? It, it changes you when you come to the point where, because like, this, is, this is deeply personal, right? You're, this, is, you're, this is, it's right in your face. The sacrifice was right there. The blood is right there. And you're being marked by this blood of this life that was given for your sake so that you could be considered clean and have that relationship with God again. This is why, I mean, David, David had no idea what this prayer, God, cleanse me with this blood. He he had no idea what this prayer was actually going to cost God centuries from now when God sent to the world the Lamb of God who would take away 
the sins of the world. And this is why Romans 5 says, God shows his great love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. This atoning sacrifice on my behalf and yours. And when, when you, so when you take all of this, put it together, right? When you're struck by the gravity of your sin, when you own the gravity of your sin, when you recognize that you need forgiveness, and when you know that you have forgiveness because of God's love for you and his offer to you, and when you, and when you realize that it doesn't cost you anything other than humility and faith and trust in him, that melts you. That frees you from all of the trying, all of the trying to pay it off. It gives you that new engine. And it motivates you to, now, now you want to obey God. I can't help but give him my life and my service and my good deeds. Now I, now I get to. I don't have to, I get to. And that's what changes you. And this is where spiritual transformation happens. And this is why confession more than anything, confession is the beginning of that life that is lived free from guilt, free from shame, free from sin and its bondage and soaring in the grace of God. My, in my mind all week there's been this lyric from a, from a hymn. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Will you pray with me and praise God with me? Father, I, I do praise you. We praise you for what, for what you have done and the, the cost that you have borne onto yourself, the, the, the price that you paid to make forgiveness available so that we can... Receive it and grow in it and, I, and, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you. Lord, I pray for some in this room that may uh, struggle to, uh, to, to fully own their sin, to want to own their sin or struggle to, um, to trust that you are in fact merciful and loving as you promised that you are. So I pray for humility. I pray, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you show yourself near, show yourself true to these humble hearts. I ask this in the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.